If you haven't been with us the last uh, six weeks or so, we've been doing a sermon series called The Thread. Uh, one sermon from each book of the Bible, and we are now to the book of Ruth. And so we're, we're connecting the dots, showing how these stories in the Old Testament actually point to and find their fulfillment in Jesus. That's where the thread comes from. And I don't know about you, but I've been really encouraged by so many of you getting in your Bibles, uh, reading sections of Scripture you haven't read before. And uh, if you've been tracking along with us, this last week was a good one. You know why? Four chapters. This is what we call catch-up week. But well, let me just speak. If you're, if you're struggling to keep up, that's okay. Just stay with it. Um, just read a little bit from each and, and maybe just try to bump it up a, a, another few chapters each week. Next week, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And so if you can at least get to there, uh, when, when the people demand of God a king. But today, we're in the book of Ruth. So would you pray with me? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to dive into this story. I pray, God, that you would speak through me or in spite of me and that in the story of Ruth and Boaz you would reveal to us our need for a kinsman redeemer whose name is Jesus, who will restore us and rescue us. And so God, open our eyes to him through me or in spite of me, but do that because that's what we need. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray, amen. So the story of Ruth actually happens during the period of the judges. If you remember from last week, it was one of the darkest bleakest seasons of Israel's history. The last line of the book of Judges summarizes the book better than I could. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you actually read through Judges and got to the last few chapters and wondered, how in the world is this in the Bible? The bleakness of the story shows us what life, looked like, what life looks like when all of us decide right and wrong for ourselves. And the reason that I highlight that is that the book of Ruth happens that during that time, it shows us that even in the bleakest moments of human history, there are often beautiful stories of God's redemption and of those seeking God in righteousness. The book of Ruth is such a beautiful contrast to the bleakness of its time. Here's a brief intro video to catch you up on the story. The book of Ruth was most likely written by the prophet Samuel sometime between 1011 and 931 BC during the period of Israel's judges. This book tells the story of an Israelite woman named Naomi who lived with her husband, their two sons, and their sons' wives, Orpah and Ruth, in the country of Moab. Naomi's husband and sons all die during a famine, leaving the women widowed without financial support. True to custom, Orpah returned to her family, but Ruth was determined to support her mother-in-law, Naomi, and the two moved back to Naomi's homeland of Israel. Ruth's loyalty does not go unnoticed, as she is given favor in the eyes of a nearby farmer, Boaz, who takes care to provide for them. Ruth and Boaz later marry, bringing redemption to their family name. Ruth, a foreigner not bound by any law or tradition to stay with her mother-in-law, lived out such a steadfast commitment that God honored her by giving her a place in the lineage of Jesus. 
the one who would redeem humanity's broken status through his ultimate sacrifice. Did you guys know that the book of Ruth only takes 14 minutes to read out loud? I mean, we've been in Judges and Leviticus for so long that 14 minutes. And so actually, one of the things that we're commanded to do together when we gather is to read Scripture together out loud. And so I'm going to actually read the story of Ruth this morning. And so what I want you to do is I want you to imagine that there's a nice cozy chair to sit in, maybe a little fire on the hearth over there. Snuggle right in, maybe grab a cup of coffee or a, a mug of tea, and, and it's story time with Pastor Kyle, okay? And so as we do this, we're going to listen to this beautiful story of redemption, and I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation this morning. Normally, I preach out of the English Standard Version of the, of the Bible, and different translations are good for different things. I like a lot of them, and so we never want to get enslaved to just one of them. The reason I like the New Living Translation is that it just makes it so plain. Especially with stories, when you're reading large chunks of scripture, it takes some interpretive license, not a ton, but some, and it, it just makes the meaning of it very plain to us. So we're going to read through in that particular translation this morning. And as we read the story, I want you to look for three things. Three things. The first, I want you to look for acts of kindness and love shown during this time period of great cruelty. Okay? Second, I want you to look for a redeemer or the concept of a kinsman redeemer because that's going to be the big idea. And then third, I want you to look for God's providence, God's hand behind the scene. Okay? So, Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. And the two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died... This left Naomi alone without two her two sons or her husbands. And so the opening line set during the period of the judges set the story up as a tragedy. Naomi left her homeland with an empty belly but a full heart. There was famine in Israel, but she had her husband and her two sons, signs that God was blessing her life. She had what she wanted, even though she was hungry. But then... Once they get to Moab, things start breaking down for her. Her husband, Elimelech, dies, which would have been heartbreaking, but also not all that common in their day. But then 10 years later, her two sons, her two married sons, die childless so that she is left with her two widowed daughter-in-laws. That would have put them in a very vulnerable financial place, and now they've got to make some decisions about life. Verse 6. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So the famine's gone. So Naomi and her two daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for the, your kindness to your husbands and to me. 
May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why would you go with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who would grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' home. For I am too old to marry again, and even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry anyone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. We see that Naomi in this story is heartbroken, but she's not heartless. She knows that she can offer very little in terms of financial security to these two daughter-in-laws. Their prospects with her are not very good. Life as a, a widowed Moabite woman living as a Gentile in Jewish land would probably not have been a recipe for sustained financial success and security. She sees the recent turn of events in her life as God's judgment on her. And so an effort to to save her daughter-in-laws from her fate, an effort to provide for them, she tries to set them free. She frees them from any obligation that they might feel toward her. She says, go back to your homes and get remarried in your own country and, and maybe then you have a chance. With me, there's no chance. Go remarry among your own people, the Moabites even though they're a godless pagan people. Verse 14. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. And Ruth's response is beautiful. Listen to these words. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you or turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So Orpah returns home. But Ruth's response is beautiful. She throws in her lot, not only with Naomi, her mother-in-law, but also, we'll see, she throws her lot in with Naomi's God, Yahweh. And while one of those feels hopeless, the other is most assuredly not. And so the two of them continue on their journey. Verse 19, when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi, the women asked? Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer, and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, it doesn't take a a theologian to to look and realize that Naomi is not in a good spot, is she? She has allowed bitterness and anger toward God to creep into her heart so that she brazenly says, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, call me bitter. The name Naomi means to be pleasant, 
The name Mara means bitter. How bad do things have to be for you to take on the name bitter? To take in as your very identity, bitter, angry, resentful. I bet a few of you might have been at that point before. Maybe you're not going around saying, hey, call me bitter. But in your identity, you've taken on that God is against me. God hates me. He doesn't care. Maybe you're even there this morning. You're bitter. You're mad at God, believing the lie that he has abandoned you, that he doesn't care what happens to you. If that's you, I just would encourage you to read the rest of the story and see just how much God cares about Naomi. Chapter 2. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, go ahead. What she's referring to is, in, if you remember in Israel's law, one of the ways that they provided for the poor was that they wouldn't harvest the entirety of their field all the way to the edges. They would go, and anything that they dropped while they were harvesting, they would leave it. And the very poorest among them would go, and they would glean the droppings of the field. And so Ruth is saying, hey, let me go do that. This, your people have some, some laws where we're not completely abandoned. Let me go and, and pick up what has fallen from the scraps of what everybody else has harvested. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, coincidentally, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. He's a wealthy man. He's going out to check on the fields. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked his foreman, foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go into any of the other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting, and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly, and when you are thirsty, keep your, help yourself to the water that they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked. I am only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. Boaz sees Ruth as a righteous woman, a woman of high character, a woman of generosity and kindness, to a woman that he cares dearly about, Naomi, his sister-in-law, or relative, close relative. And so he blesses her, verse 12. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Now at this point, I don't think he has any idea what that actually is going to look like. 
But what a beautiful blessing that he pronounces over this great woman of character and virtue. Verse 13, I hope, you, I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied, for you have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I'm not one of your workers. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine or vinegar. So she sat with his harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her, and pull out some of the heads of barley from the bundles and, oops, drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from the meal. So I guess she got a doggy bag as well, all right? Verse 19, where did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. She realizes, hey, this is not normal gleanings here. God's favor was on you in a unique way. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. She said, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing kindness to us as well as to uh, your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Then Ruth said, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in the early summer. And all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. So Ruth just happens to be in Boaz's field. Maybe God is doing something to bring about redemption and restoration. So she continues working in the fields through the barley harvest, through the wheat harvest. So some time has now passed. And, and in chapter 3, Naomi begins to make some plans. Verse 1. One day... Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Why don't you go get yourself dolled up? Take off the clothes of mourning and Put on clothes that would show that you are available. <laughs> then go to the fresh threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything as you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he laid down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. Remember, there's no light bulbs. It's dark. I am your servant Ruth, she replied. 
Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. And we read this like 3,000 years later, and we're like, spread the corner of your garment. What? What are we talking about here? Ruth is being very forward with Boaz, saying, redeem me, marry me, so to speak. But keep in mind, the, the way the author is telling the story, she is not being scandalous or unrighteous in any way. She is simply being forward and saying, Boaz, I would like for you to be more than just a kind benefactor to me and to Naomi. Boaz responds positively. Keep in mind that all the things that Boaz has noticed about Ruth have been her character, her godliness, her kindness, her loyalty, her generosity. He doesn't even see her at this point. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary. For everyone in town knows that you are a virtuous woman. That's the same phrase as used in Proverbs 31. But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you, very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. So Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until morning, but she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Boaz is considerate in trying to protect her honor, her virtue. Then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. And he measured six scoops of barley in the cloak and placed it on her back. Then he returned to the town. When Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, what happened, my daughter? Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her. And she added, he gave me these six scoops of barley and said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. Naomi knows a little things about men. She knows that Boaz is now highly motivated and that their redemption will not be too long in coming. Chapter 4, the story comes to a beautiful conclusion. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, Come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten leaders of the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. Sounds like a good business deal. I'll take some more land. Then Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. Now, in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and to hand it over to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal and said to Boaz, you buy the land. 
Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd sitting around, You are witnesses today that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are witnesses today. So next time you go to the bank, take off your shoe and say... We are going to do this, this deal, this financial transaction. So we read these things, and these customs are incredibly foreign to us. But these, these marks of ceremony were significant for them, saying, hey, this is real. This is binding. They're just very foreign to us. Then the elders and all the people standing at the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathath and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, now at last Naomi has a son again. None of this Mara business. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the grandfather of David. This is the genealogical record of their ancestor Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. David was ultimately the father of Jesus. What a beautiful story of God's redemption, right? Redemption in the life of Naomi and Ruth. But brothers and sisters, this is more than just a story about the redemption that God did in the life of Naomi and Ruth. It's a story that connects God's promises to his people during one of the darkest periods of Israel's history. Remember I asked you to pay attention to three things in the story? Kindness and love shown during a period of cruelty. The concept of a redeemer or a kinsman redeemer and why it is needed. And then God's providence over all of these things. The first thing that strikes us about the book of Ruth is the kindness and the love of both Ruth and Boaz during a period known for its darkness, its sin, its cruelty, its selfishness, its violence. The kindness and the love of Ruth is beautiful, isn't it? especially in a world filled with brutality and idolatry, when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, the loyalty and the kindness that Ruth shows to Naomi, her mother-in-law, is utterly striking, isn't it? To throw her future and her lot in where there seemingly was no hope was a profound act of loyalty, a profound act of kindness and love. But in the story, we realize that she didn't just throw her lot in with Naomi. She also threw her lot in with Naomi's God, Yahweh. And that is far from hopeless, isn't it? 
It's important to note that the author consistently paints Ruth as a model of not only kindness and love, but of righteousness and virtue and character, living rightly before God and before others. In fact, as much as we might elaborate on other things in the story, it is the character quality of Ruth that draws Boaz to her, her kindness, her loyalty, and her love for Naomi. And then we see the kindness of Boaz. In Boaz, we see in many ways the model of what a righteous man looked like, one that was concerned with justice and generosity and equity. God had given his law and how they were to harvest their fields and their crops, keeping in mind the poorest among them and leaving some for them and not mistreating the sojourner or the alien or the outsider. This is what the Old Testament would describe as living justly or living righteously before the law. Boaz is a wealthy man, but not everybody obeyed the law of God. Many of them hoarded and gathered all that they have, but Boaz freely shares. He doesn't mistreat foreigners and those who would glean at his field. In fact, he is generous toward those in need. When Boaz finds out who this Moabite widow is and what she has done for Naomi, his close relative, he doesn't stop with simply providing a little. He seeks to bless her and use, uses her kindness, or bless her in her kindness and, and use his wealth to provide for her, meet her needs. He uses his power not to manipulate or exploit her, but actually, on the contrary, to shelter her and protect her. He keeps her safe knowing that she is in a very vulnerable spot as a Gentile widow. He says, you stay close to my harvesters. You stay close, and I have given instructions that they are not to mistreat you, but to treat you kindly. You eat with us. You share our water. Why was he doing this? Primarily because he saw who she was, and he wanted to care for him, and it was who Boaz was. Man, I would just say this is a great picture of what true biblical masculinity is. It's not about bravado. It's not about swagger or putting anybody in their place. It's using the strength and the power that God has given you to protect and to care. See, he sees not only that Ruth, he sees that not only Ruth and Naomi have a meal for the day, but that they are protected and sheltered and provided for during the entire harvest without expecting anything back in return. Now, if you haven't been paying attention to our world right now, with all of the rancor and the anger that is so prevalent, people are desperate for small, simple acts of kindness, generosity, love, mercy, forgiveness. Kindness and sincerity are the new counterculture. So if you want to be a rebel, if you want to rebel against the spirit of our age, don't fall in love with biting sarcasm or bitter irony. Rather show sincerity and kindness and love and generosity. I saw a video last week that moved me to tears. It was two older Ukrainian women showing simple kindness to a Russian soldier who was hungry, giving him a warm glass of tea and something to eat because he was hungry. And as you began to see the tears form in the soldier's eyes, you realize that he's caught in bigger things than he can imagine. And they saw the humanity in one another, 
And a simple act of kindness towards someone who should have been your enemy was profound and beautiful and cutting against the craziness of our age. See, through the story of Ruth, we see kindness and generosity and loyalty, both on Ruth's part, Ruth's part, and Boaz's part. But behind it, we actually see the kindness of God, don't we? The mercy of God in the midst of the bleak and the broken to bring about redemption and restoration. Hmm. But as much as these acts of kindness and love hit us, it's actually not the primary point of the book of Ruth. To understand the primary point of the book of Ruth, we need to look at the role of a redeemer or a kinsman redeemer and why it was needed. To redeem something means to rescue, to restore, to buy back, to take care of. A kinsman redeemer in their day was a close relative who had the right and the responsibility to redeem either the land or the widow, the childless widow of his relative. In this story, they're actually combined and linked. It was one thing to redeem the land. This was often a very profitable venture. Yes, I'll, I'll have more land and more harvest, and it's a good financial move. But to marry the childless widow of a close relative and provide offspring for her to carry on the name of your relative, this idea of Leverite marriage is so foreign to us, isn't it? Because often widows in our day aren't helpless. They can provide for themselves. Sometimes they have pensions. We live in a completely different world, but a widow in their day was one of the most vulnerable people, especially a childless widow. And so this was enacted in order to provide for and carry on the legacy or the name of the one who had died. You see, in their day, your name, your legacy was tied to your your ancestors, it was tied to your land, it was tied to your family, it was tied to your children, all of these things kind of linked in a way that they aren't today. And this idea of Leverite marriage was a way of continuing on the name or the legacy and ensuring that the land was used and that the widows were provided for. Most of us read about this and you think about your brother-in-law or your sister-in-law and you're like, that is craziness, right? but not in their day. Both Naomi and Ruth were desperate. They owned the land, but for some reason they couldn't actually work it or keep it. They were vulnerable. They needed redemption. And in this moment, Boaz steps to the plate. But in the narrative, he's not actually the closest relative. He's certainly willing to and wanting to redeem them. He loves Ruth, and he is attracted to her, not just her physical beauty, but for her character and who she is. And so chapter 4 is essentially a back and forth between Boaz and this unnamed relative, this unnamed man, that when he's presented with an opportunity to redeem the land, he's like, I'm in. When he sees that it comes attached with a Moabite widow named Ruth, he says, I'm out. I cannot redeem it myself, he says, lest I impair my own inheritance. I would, but I have to protect my own name. And my own inheritance, that seems too messy. I'm not willing to do that. Now, the irony of the story is thickest right here. Let me ask you this question. What is the name of the guy who is so deeply concerned with protecting his name? We don't know. No one does. But what's the name of the guy who doesn't let the potential sideways glances of marrying a Moabite sway him? His name's Boaz. And we all know his name, don't we? The story of Ruth 
is about Ruth and Naomi and about how God uses Boaz to bring about redemption in this life that had seemed so tragic. This woman who has taken on the identity of bitter, the Almighty is against me, ends the story as a giggling grandma with a baby on her lap. But the story of Ruth is also about us, and it's about our need for a kinsman redeemer, someone who is closely related to us, who can come and at great cost to himself, rescue us, redeem us, restore us to our position and our inheritance as God's image bearers. And guess what? Boaz becomes the great-grandfather of someone you might have heard of. His name's King David. He'll figure rather prominently in the next few books that we look at. And after David, David's greater son, the true and greatest kinsman redeemer, whose name is Jesus, who redeems us from slavery to sin and death, who restores us beyond our wildest hopes and dreams, often in the moments when things look the bleakest. Not only that, but look at God's heart for the Gentiles and the nations. How amazing is it that in the line of Messiah, this is now the second or third woman to be included who is a Gentile woman, named in the ancestry of Messiah. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12, that through him all of the other families of the earth will be blessed by his descendant? Well, now that descendant has Gentiles included in his family tree, and As I look around, most of us are Gentiles, and we can say amen to that, right? Finally, I want to consider how the word providence looms large over the entirety of this story. What is both brilliant and shocking is that while God is mentioned by the characters in the story, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, the narrator of this story doesn't mention God at all, which is rather odd as we've been reading through The Old Testament, the the narrator, the, the storyteller, the person writing is often, always mentioning God. Why then does the narrator not comment on these things, not connect the dots to God? See, this is intentional. It's showing us that behind the seemingly insignificant and mundane events of ordinary people's lives, God is always at work. He's always at work. Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, my guess is they didn't think that they were living through world-altering events. It was just their life. But behind it all, God was at work, using ordinary, albeit unlikely people, to advance his promises and his purposes forward. Naomi had thought God abandoned her. He most assuredly hadn't. He takes this bitter woman who had given up on him and changed her into a delighting, laughing grandma. Ruth thought she had signed up for a life of poverty and loneliness as she struggled to get by and help her mother-in-law make ends meet. She ended up being the great-grandma of King David himself. Boaz was just a nice guy trying to make the world a better place, noticing the virtue of this woman before him. He wasn't seeking a name for himself, and yet he'll be remembered forever. So what about you and me? How do we apply this story tangibly to our life? First, are you bitter today? Do you think that God has abandoned you? Couldn't care less about you? 
What if behind the struggle of your current life, behind the suffering, is a providential God who wants nothing more than to bring you through it, to restore you, to one day bless you? Could you trust that God today with your pain, with your anger, with your hurt? Could you give that to the Lord knowing that just as he brought about redemption in Naomi's life and hundreds and thousands of other people through the story that God is a God who takes bad things and makes good out of them, who takes hard things and suffering and brokenness and makes beautiful things out of the ashes because he's a God of redemption and restoration. See, we can see that happen over and over and over and over and over again in the biblical story, but the question remains, am I going to trust God with my life? Am I going to hold on to my bitterness? Or even if I don't know how this is going to work out, I'm going to entrust it to him because he's trustworthy. Brother, sister, lay it down today. I can't tell you exactly how it's going to work out, but I do know that God who does work out everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And you know what? Sometimes that promise is fully met in eternity, not in our circumstances now, but it will be met. There's an empty tomb that guarantees it. Second, have you embraced your kinsman redeemer? Have you put your faith in Jesus, the one who was close to you, who at great cost to himself restored you? rescued you from sin and death and restored you to an inheritance that you can't even imagine? Are you trusting in that Redeemer today? If not, today could be the day. You could say, all right, God, I, I don't know all of this. I don't understand all of this, but I know that I need to be redeemed. I know that I need to be saved. I know that I need to be restored and that I can't do it myself. And so, Jesus, I'm going to trust you to do that for me as my redeemer who lives. Third, what if you're not in either of those places at all? You believe and you're not struggling with bitterness today. Or God's hand in your life, you're, you're, you're good with that. What about the simple acts of kindness and justice that God calls you to in seeming obscurity? How might God use your ordinary acts of faithfulness, love, mercy, and kindness like he did Boaz's? You might never know, but wouldn't it be fun to find out and test him in that? What a force for good would, would be an entire community of people who don't care deeply about our own name, but are simply trying to faithfully and joyfully live under the rule and the reign of God, showing love and kindness, mercy and justice to those around us, using our power and our influence not to make a name for ourselves, but to be a blessing to others. Brothers and sisters, that is our calling as the church of Jesus Christ. Might we live up to that? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and how it provokes us and challenges us and encourages us and gives us great joy. Would you open our eyes to the beautiful Redeemer whose name is Jesus? In his name we pray, amen.